So, from Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haherath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Belzephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with them, with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. 
The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. One of the first times I ever like spoke in front of a whole congregation when I was in Chicago, I was giving announcements like Greg did this morning, and I, I got to the end of my announcements, and I didn't know what else to say. And so I just kind of panicked, and I looked around, and I just said, it's fun to be here. <laughs> and then I like got off and just walked down, and I sat right next to the other pastor. Like So I'd go sit next to Doug, and he just nudged me. I was like, it's fun to be here? <laughs> um, but uh, that is how I truly feel. Um, it's how, that's how Grace and I feel being here. We love it. Um, it's awesome. And uh, so thanks for going through all those Presbyterian things um, and welcome, welcoming me in such a way because uh, we love being here. It's really fun to be here. Um, so we're finishing our sermon series on the first part of the book of Exodus this morning. We're going to take a break starting next week for Advent. Um, so then we'll be looking at Colossians 1 and who that says Jesus is. But this is going to be our last week in Exodus for now. And then a little ways into the new year, we'll pick up the end of Exodus. So last week, if you were here, we talked about that experience that, uh, that the Israelites had of being led into the wilderness by God. We talked about that experience when we're led into the wilderness by God. What are we going to do um, and how are we going to interact there? And we talked about how it's it's really hard being in the wilderness, but it's really good as well because God is with us there. And so this week we're jumping to Exodus 14, which Greg read for us. And it's the greatest story of deliverance of deliverance in Israelite history. And it's this event, the crossing of the Red Sea, that Jewish people still today celebrate and look to. And so as we look at Exodus 14 this morning, we're going to we're going to highlight three parts of the story and how each of those pieces encourages us to look to Jesus. So the three parts are we look to Jesus because he knows evil's plan. We look to Jesus because he knows us. And we look to Jesus because God has a plan. So he knows evil's plan. He knows us and God has a plan. So let me pray as we get started. God, speak to us this morning. Thank you that your word is true. And that you can use, us, use it to teach us and to correct us and train us and make us more like your son. God, I pray that you would encourage us and convict us this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So first, God knows evil's plan. Our text, if you're looking at it, it starts in verse 1 with God speaking to Moses. And God says, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Haharoth between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. So if you remember how we closed last week, we asked this question, when we're in the wilderness, are we going to wander or are we going to follow? 
We're going to wander or are we going to follow? When we're in those like challenging seasons of life, which of those two options are we going to go after? Will we follow God in the wilderness or are we going to try to choose our own path and try to make our own way and create a path other than the one that God is leading us on? So Pharaoh, he's this, he's, Pharaoh epitomizes evil. He's a mass murderer. He, he carried out a genocide and killed hundreds of thousands of people. Pharaoh is an evil, evil man. And just days ago, he was willing to let the Israelites go, but now he's changed his mind. And so if you notice what Pharaoh says, God says Pharaoh is going to say that the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness and they're shut in by the wilderness. But if you, so do you notice what's happening there? Rather than knowing that the Israelites would be led by God, Pharaoh assumes that they would be wandering. So you see, Pharaoh is like misunderstanding and underestimating the people's relationship with God. Pharaoh is saying, there's no way that a God who is so powerful could personally lead a group of people. He's like, that's not, if this God of the Israelites is a real God, that's not how he works. He doesn't personally lead people. He doesn't lead people in the wilderness. There's no way. That means that the Israelites are wandering. So Pharaoh is misunderstanding their God, God's relationship with the people. Pharaoh says they're wandering, they're shut in. But lo and behold, what we're about to see is that they aren't wandering or shut in and that God's going to provide a way out. And that's actually what the word Exodus means. It means way out. And so the other thing right at the start that we want to notice is that God knows exactly what Pharaoh is going to say. This is God talking. God says, Pharaoh is going to say this. And it's exactly what Pharaoh says. And so God knows what Pharaoh is planning to do. He knows evil's plan. And so this should make us think about our own lives because the great desire of evil, the great desire of the evil one is that we would be disconnected from God. That's what Pharaoh wanted for the Israelites. He knew, he knew if they were wandering in the wilderness and they were shut in, that he could, he could recapture them, take them back to slavery. He knew that if they were disconnected from God, they didn't stand a chance. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, how do we see evil in our own life trying to disconnect us from God? Because that is evil's greatest desire to disconnect us from God. And so when Pharaoh's making his plan to re-enslave the Israelites, he's banking on the fact that they're not led by God and that they're disconnected from this God and that they're wandering in the wilderness and that they're shut in. And so Pharaoh misunderstands the relationship that the Israelites can have with God. But what, I, what, what that leads us to do this morning is to ask, do we also misunderstand the relationship that we can have with God? If God is saying, I can have such a personal relationship with the Israelites that I could lead them, I could lead them every step of the way, and Pharaoh's misunderstanding that, we have to look at our own hearts and say, are we misunderstanding that? Do we not see the ways in which we can have a personal relationship with God and instead feel like God is disconnected or far away? I had this, um, this really famous professor in seminary um, named D.A. Carson. And 
when I say really famous, I mean like Christian famous, not like real world famous. Like somewhere between like Pastor Doug and Amy Grant. That's how famous he was on the Christian famous scale. Um, so he's kind of famous. Um, but so D.A. Carson, he, he was my faculty advisor. And so I was supposed to go to him to like ask him all the questions about what classes I should take and, and like tell him my problems about um, my girlfriend or something. I don't know. Um, I never talked to him about grace, uh, but I was hoping we would get there. But anyway, I spent the first two years and I never met with him because he, he just seemed so important. And I felt like every day when he walked into class, he was like, I just got off the plane from China where I was training hundreds of church pastors. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And then the next week he was like, I just got back from a conference in Europe. And and he just seemed to have so many amazing things that he was doing that I was like, he, he doesn't have time for me. Like, that would be silly. That would be a waste of his time. My third year of seminary, I finally decided, like, I'm going to meet with Dr. Carson. I'm going to schedule office hours. And when I went into his office, um, he kind of looked at me and was like, why haven't you ever met with me? And I just kind of blubbered and was like, "Uh, I just thought you were too busy. And he just kind of responded with this like warm smile and said, I always wanted to meet with you. And That kind of stuck with me, this idea that he always wanted to meet with me because I just I'd misunderstood our relationship all these years. He'd been wanting to meet with me. He'd been wanting to spend time with me. But I just thought he was too important or too too doing these amazing things in China and Europe and just all over the place. And I thought he's not he wouldn't want to spend time with me. And I think this is what we do with God sometimes. We, like, we, put him, we put him up here and we say, God is in control of like, all this stuff, like the church globally. And he's doing all these amazing things. And he works through a few people and he seems to speak to that guy and that seems cool, but I don't have that experience. And we, we misunderstand this personal relationship that we can have with God. We misunderstand it just like Pharaoh does. We, we end up in the wilderness and we end up shut in because we don't seek out that leading by God that he offers us. And so Pharaoh speaks in verse 5. He says, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? And so Pharaoh is starting to really regret losing all his slave labor. And here's what Pharaoh says. He says, make, make ready my chariot and I'll take my army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So that sentence is kind of funny to me because it's like he took 600 of his best chariots. And then he was like, and I guess I'll just take all my other chariots as well. So I don't know how many chariots that is, but it's a lot of chariots. And 600, 600 of them are in like prime condition. And then there are probably some other chariots that are like, you know, a little rickety, but he said, bring them, bring them anyway. But I think what this emphasizes for us is this idea that Pharaoh wasn't just like haphazardly saying, I think I'd like to have my, uh, my slave force back. He was everything he had, he was chasing after these people with. Everything he had. And so we've learned that God knows Pharaoh's plan. God knows Pharaoh's plan and he knows what he wants to do before he even does it. And the text even goes so far as to say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would do it. 
And here's why it says he would do that, so that God will get the glory, meaning God will be victorious. And so our first point this morning is we should look to Jesus because God knows evil's plan. Whatever things are happening in your life, whatever ways in which evil is working against you, whatever sicknesses and challenges, whatever problems in your marriage or in your relationship with your children or with your parents, whatever those challenges are, God knows them. And he knows what's going to happen. And he's personal enough that he'll continue to care for it. And so that's, that's where we start our second point this morning. We pick it up in verse 9. It says, the Egyptians overtook them exactly where God had told them to camp in verse 1. So if you follow, in verse 1, God says, camp right here. And then God just has them stay camped right there until the Egyptians come. And this would be kind of upsetting for me if I was, you can just picture them. They're all like sitting camped out and there's this pillar of cloud and they're just kind of looking at it. They're like, okay, (laughs) any day now we should go somewhere. But they're just camped out right in front of the Red Sea. And there humanly seems no way that they would be able to cross this thing. And they're just camped out in front of it. And they have no idea that Pharaoh is coming until verse 10. And in verse 10, it says, Pharaoh drew near. And for the next, for the next five verses, we just get this like, amazing picture into the emotional experience of the Israelites. It's, it's amazing the emotion that we see in them as they, they see Pharaoh draw near. And the text says, they lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And so Greg read this, this phrase for us in Psalm 121 this morning. It's one of the most famous psalms in Scripture. It says, I lift my eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord. Notice that parallel. I lifted my eyes to the Egyptians or lifting my eyes to the Lord. It's, this same, um, it's the same Hebrew word, NASA. Uh, which So my Hebrew grammar professor in college said, Tyler, you'll never forget this word because just think about a spaceship. And I know this is like reading spaceships back into the Old Testament, which isn't great. But it helps me remember that when we're lifting our eyes, it's like we're watching a spaceship go off and we're just slowly like you're right here. You're right on ground level. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, my goodness. And you just watch that spaceship go up. And I, I imagine this is what this is their version of the Old Testament spaceship, like hundreds of chariots. And so they're, they're, they're sitting there camped out waiting for the next direction, waiting to be like, where are we going next? And all of a sudden, they're watching the pillar of cloud and it says they turn around and they start to lift their eyes and there's thousands of chariots chasing after them. So this is, this is the point where they, uh, where they start freaking out. Um, and here's, here's what they say to Moses. They say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And so they just accused Moses of like 17 different things. They were like, this is terrible. We don't like you. We wish we were in slavery. We want to get out of here. You're the worst. That was, that's like my, like, the message summary of that passage right there. But 
But I really love it because it's, it's their genuine human emotional experience, and it's not sugar-coated at all. You know, sometimes you hear these Bible verses that get thrown around you when you're in a, a challenging time, and you're like, that isn't helpful to me at all right now. That doesn't sound like a human experience. That doesn't sound like what I'm going through. And this is God's people saying, we wish we were back in slavery. The leader that you sent us is terrible, and we wish that we were not here. And I get it. They're, they're staring down these Egyptian forces, and there's no, there's no human way out. And they're staring down, and best case scenario, they go back and get to be slaves again, treated worse than before. Or worst case, they're dead in a matter of minutes. In, in, the, in his second letter, the Apostle Peter calls the church sojourners and exiles. And I think this is what the Egyptians are really rubbing up. Or this is what the Israelites are experiencing in a real way, that they are sojourners and exiles, that this world is not their home. And because it's not their home, they go, I wish we were back in slavery. That's how bad it is out here. We wish we were back in slavery. And what I want to say this morning is it's okay to not want to follow Jesus sometimes. And hear me out. I know that sounds like heresy to start. But it's okay to have the emotional experience where you are struggling with following God. And God wants you to be honest about that. The, one of the only people in Scripture who gets, who gets called a man after God's own heart, King David, he has like psalm after psalm all about this, where he lays it out to God and says, I don't like this. This is hard. Get me out of here. I don't like this experience. And so where we have to wrestle with God then, though, is what we do with that experience. When we don't want to follow him, when we want to go back to slavery, when we want to just be able to do with our time and our money and relationships, whatever the heck we want. When that's what we want to do, when we want to be able to do whatever the heck we want with our time, our money and our relationships. When that's where we are, we have to decide what we're going to do with those feelings. Because we can give in to them and we can just say, take me back to slavery. And that's where the Israelites are this morning. Or we can decide that being with Jesus will be better. That being in God's presence is better. And that was this decision that the Israelites had right here. God was still directly in front of them. He's still a pillar of cloud right in front of them. And they can see him. And he's been leading them. He's right in front of them. And they, and they look at the Egyptians and they go, can we just go back with them? And so I'm not saying in any way that this grumbling is good. We're going to, later on as we go through the rest of Exodus, we're going to see these grumbling passages all over the place. I'm not saying the grumbling is good, but I am saying that it's normal and that this Christian life is hard. And so when you reread verses 10 to 14, I want you to look at them and, and see their emotional experience. See how hard it is for them to be in God's presence when they see the enemy right in front of them. And my favorite, my favorite verse in the Bible, it's, it's in Mark 9, and, and, and this, this centurion, he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
It's my favorite verse in the Bible. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so I want, I want to give you the, the ability this morning. I want to bless your ability to say, Lord, I don't always believe, but help my unbelief. I want you to be able to, to say that this is my experience. I believe, help my unbelief. Because if we're honest, we always have both of those things going on. We always do. Only Jesus had this full belief. And that's who we have access to. And so we need to look to him. So um, Charles Spurgeon, he was one of the greatest preachers of all time. Some of you might have, have heard of him before. He was a pastor in London for almost 40 years. And his conversion story is pretty amazing. And he recounted it a lot of different times, and it always changed just a little bit. But here's a little bit of how it went. He was 15 years old, and he was walking through the streets on a Sunday morning, and there was this crazy snowstorm. And so the snowstorm was so bad that he just needs anywhere to to tuck in and get away from the storm. And so he tucks into this little Methodist church. And he walks in, and there's about a dozen people there. And that's when I would have panicked <laughs> immediately. There's only a dozen people. They, they're definitely going to know you're visiting. That's like panic mode. Um, and so he walks in and there's about a dozen, a dozen people there. And there's a guy preaching who clearly isn't the pastor. Um, and it, probably the pastor was caught in the snowstorm or something. And the guy kind of gets up there and his text for the morning was Isaiah 45:22 which in the King James Version, which is what they would have read, reads, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And the preacher said, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. All it says is look. And the preacher went on, and the the preacher said, Now, looking does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man not need be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. He then went on to repeat, Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. And the preacher then stared directly at Spurgeon. And he said, Young man, look to Jesus and be saved. And that was the moment where Spurgeon became a Christian And what I'm here to say this morning is the Israelites are standing in that place and they have God on one side and they have the Egyptians on the other side and they can lift their eyes to God and look to Jesus or they can lift their eyes to the Egyptians and look to them. And we have this same opportunity this morning. Where will we look? Where will we lift our eyes? Where will we turn our eyes? Here's what the famous old hymn says. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There are three things that Moses commands the Israelites to do in verse 13. If you look at it, in verse 13, Moses commands the Israelites and he says, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. So first, fear not. At the core of our Christian religion is this idea that we don't need to fear. 
which we talk about fear generally a lot in our in our culture, but we don't often talk about like the deep, deep fears. Like the fears that that can paralyze you and rock you to your core. You know, the stuff like I'm afraid my career isn't going to pan out. I'm afraid that my relationship with my child is broken and will never be fixed. Or my relationship with my parent is broken or will never be fixed. The fears of my loneliness is going to overwhelm me. Or I'm never really going to feel successful enough in life to be happy. We don't talk about those kind of fears very often because they really, they really get you right here. And so when God tells us to fear not, though, this is the type of fear he's talking about. He's not talking about like your fear of spiders and of small places and of, I don't know what else, of cucumbers like cats. Cats are afraid of cucumbers. Did you know that? They are. Look it up on YouTube. Very alarming videos. We watched some the other night. So that was not on my script. Um, So... So we're not talking about those kind of fears. We're talking about like these big fears of like, what are you actually afraid of? Because what I want to say this morning is the only reason, the only human reason that we would not be afraid of something is if there is someone who is in control and if the person who is in control is for us. Meaning if the person who is in control wants what is best for us, that's the only reason we would have to not fear. Because if there's someone who's in control who doesn't like us, then we should definitely be afraid. But if there's someone who, who isn't in control who likes us, then that doesn't really help either. So the only comfort we have in life and death is that Jesus is a God who is in control and is for us. He wants what is best for us. He loves us. That's the only, the only reason we cannot fear is that Christian confession that God is in control and he is for us. Secondly, stand firm. That's our second command this morning. And stand firm to start kind of sounds like a passive command. It's like generally we talk about as humans, you can, you can, you can fight or you can flee, fight or flight. That's the, normal, um, that's the normal way to go about it. But stand firm implies that we are going to stand through what is happening. It's this, this Christian idea of perseverance. It's saying, God is going to fight for you, so you don't need to fight, but you also don't need to flee because God is going to fight for you. And this is totally connected to this third command where it says, see the salvation of the Lord. And so we're called to look to God for deliverance, for the big things and for the little things. These are all God's deliverance. And so salvation is something we look to. And when we talk about salvation, we're not talking about like, some ethereal category that's like floating around up there. Salvation has a name and his name is Jesus. And so looking at salvation is looking at the person of Jesus. So as we begin our third point this morning, our third and final point this morning is we should look to Jesus because God has a plan. And so we're going to run through verses 19 to 30 and just kind of see, see what happens, play out what happens. So here's how it starts. First, the pillar of cloud, so God's presence, goes from leading them out front to behind them. So think about it this way. You have the Egyptians over here, and initially the Israelites are here and God's over here. 
But all of a sudden, God goes from in front of them to behind them. And so you have God in between the people and in between the Egyptians. So that's the first thing that happens. The second thing, Moses stretches out his hand and with a strong east wind, the text says, the waters of the sea were divided and dry ground appeared for the Israelites to walk to, to walk through. Excuse me. So I want you to realize this morning that what we are called to do, we have these three commands, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. But what the Israelites do to be saved is take little steps of faith. That's what we're called to do. Because little steps of faith are what unite us to the person of Jesus. And so the Christian life is about little steps of faith and a lot of God's grace. And I want you to hear, there's the, our part, the little part. The little steps of faith. God's part, the big part. A lot of grace. And so a little bit of faith and a lot of God's grace. And here's how one pastor puts it. Um, Tim Keller was talking about this passage and he said, you know, there were two types of Israelites probably who walked through the Red Sea. So there are these cavernous walls of water and there's one, there's probably a group of Israelites who are walking through the waters and they're like, let's go. This is amazing. Like God's going to destroy the Egyptians. We're doing so great. Like he's fighting for us. These walls of water, we're going to be saved. And they're like, this is amazing. And then there's another type of Israelite probably who are walking through going, this is how it ends. (laughs) I'm going to die right now. I'm dead. At any moment now, like I've seen this before, the water crashes over me and I drown. Like, so there are two types of Israelites. There are, there are probably these ones with profound faith who are like, God is going to show up. And then there are these ones with barely any faith at all. And so my question is, which ones were saved? Yes. It's not a trick question. Both Israelites were saved, the ones with this tiny bit of faith and the ones with more faith than we could ever think or imagine of having. And so this Christian life is about a little bit of faith and a lot of God's grace, a little bit of faith and a lot of God's grace. Our contribution are these little steps and God's contribution is a lot of grace. And what I also want to say is that as we think about the Christian life, this isn't just how we're saved. But this is also how we continue to live the Christian life. You know, it's not like we graduate to like Christianity 2.0, where all of a sudden it's like, okay, now we just need to be like Jesus. So buckle up and roll up your pants and whatever other phrases there are for doing that. It's not about graduating from the gospel news of Christianity. The way in which we're saved, a little bit of faith and a lot of God's grace is the same exact way that we continue to live in Jesus Christ. Just a little bit of faith and a lot of God's grace. And that faith is a gift of God. That's what Ephesians 2 says. It is God's gift, that faith. And so we are called to reach out to Jesus, just like that unclean woman um, does when she reaches out to Jesus and she just touches the tip of his, clo- of his cloak and she is saved. So then the last thing that happens in our story this morning is the Egyptians come chasing in, in after the Israelites. They think, okay, if they did it, we can do it too. And so they go headlong into the sea. And in just a moment's notice, verse 26 tells us Moses stretches his hand out over the sea again And every single one of those chariots, every single member of that massive Egyptian army was drowned in the sea. 
And so here's how one theologian puts it. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is God's act of salvation, saving the Israelite people. And the response to this, the response to salvation, if you look, chapter 15 is almost entirely a song. The response to God's work in our life, one of the ways that we should respond to it is by being so joyful that we sing. This is why the gospel choir was so amazing last night, because they were singing about who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we have this call to this morning to sing about how good it is, the work that God has done in our life. We, we, we should be overwhelmed with how joyful it is, because things should make us sing. Like, there are things in our lives that make us sing. For me, sometimes this is weird, I know, but when I'm running down a trail in the woods, I start to sing. Because I just love it. It's so great. And I know there's some things that make some of you sing. Um, like some of you sing when Penn State wins football games. Like you have, a, you have a cheer that people sing. There are things in our life that overjoy us, and so we sing. This is why we like sing at weddings, and we, we sing at football games. And I don't have another example, but we sing. So my other example, my wife Grace, we wake up the other morning and there's snow on the ground. And this is not how most of you reacted, but she starts screaming and singing. Because she's so excited that there's snow on the ground. And so when amazing things happen, we need to sing. So here's, here's how I want to close. Here's how I want to close this morning, since this is like the longest service of all time. Um, the Passover is when the Israelites get spared from their sins. They... God atones for their sins with the blood of a lamb. That is the Passover. And that's our Good Friday. Think about it. Jesus is our Passover lamb. We are saved by his blood. That is our Good Friday. The crossing of the Red Sea is where they are delivered from death and delivered from evil. Because Jesus' work isn't done just on the cross. He says it is finished and the sins are all paid for and atoned for, but we, we need life too. There can't just be death. We need life too. And so while the Passover is our Good Friday, the resurrection, that's our Easter Sunday, is the crossing of the Red Sea. And that's how the Israelites looked at this story. They said, we've been delivered from every single enemy possible. And so this morning, if you are a Christian then what you need to do is see God's redemption in your life, and that should make the other things in this world pass away a little bit. It should make you not fear as much. It should make you rest and be able to enjoy God's presence. And it should make, as one hymn puts it, the things of this world will grow strangely dim because of looking at how amazing the things are that God has done for you. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, then this is your opportunity to see to see yourself crossing from death to life and to see that Jesus can deal with your fears and Jesus can deal with the brokenness in your life and in the world around you in an amazing way. And so we're going to take communion now um, because we thought the service wasn't long enough. And so I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward um, and I'm going to talk as we, as we um, pass out the elements. I'm going to share a little bit about communion. So the ushers are going to come forward, and communion is our family meal. Communion is the way in which Jesus strengthens and encourages us and feeds us.
Because we come to Jesus this morning and we say, we come to Jesus this morning and we say, we are feeble, we don't have enough faith, and we need more of Jesus in our life. And so this meal is a family meal for us as Christians. And so if you've turned from every other way of, of living, if you've turned and you look to Jesus for your salvation, then this is a meal for you. If you're not there yet, then you can just let the bread and the juice pass by you. But this is our family meal.